Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 100. Oh, oh my god. I know. We did it. We did. We did it. We've made it all the way to 100. And this the is The mother-in-law asked me when we were going to hit 100 or if we had hit 100 and I'm like we're real close to recording it. This is not the 100th thing on our feed. We passed that a long time ago because of bonus content. But this is our 100th pope and it is Pope Pascal the 1st. Is it technically the 100th Pope because we did have the first two episodes and Peter is three? I don't know. This is our 98th Pope, but he is our 100th (sighs) official episode. (laughs) And you know what? It kind of works. Pascal is like a a turning point. Pasquale. Pasquale. He's also the first Pope in the 9th century Liber Pontificalis edition. And he puts us at... Currently 37% through all of our popes, so. That is a terrifyingly low number for how long we've been (laughs) doing this. I know, I was like, wow, that's not what I expected. But there are 266 popes, so that's the math. Let's do this for the hundredth time. Pascal was born in Rome to parents Bonosus and Theodora. He was part of the Massimo family, one of the oldest European noble families, with a long-standing presence right up till the 20th century. As we said last week, the Liber Sensum claimed that our last pope, Stephen IV, was also from the Massimo family, but other sources say that that was extremely unlikely, so he's not likely a relative of this pope. However, Pope Anastasius, episode 41, is considered to be an early member of the House of Massimo, so Anastasius and Pascal are the two officially claimed popes of this lineage. Okay, so, sorry, I need to side side go. There is a (laughs) horror game that our mutual friend played for us that has within it a fake cooking segment called Massimo! And, uh, yes. I I really need to show it to you, so you can definitely picture what I'm thinking every time you say Massimo. (laughs) Massimo. Well, unfortunately, this will be the last time I say Massimo for you. So, Pascal was born aristocratic, and like some of the other nobles we've seen in recent popes, he joined the church early and spent his youth working in the Lateran as he moved up through the ranks of deacon, subdeacon, and priest. And once again, we have a glowing summary of his personality provided by the Liber Pontificalis. He was holy, chaste, godly, innocent, outspoken, devout, fully pure, and he was most cheerful and happy in opportunely distributing all he had as alms to the poor. So he frequently applied himself to talking of the things of God with religious and holy monks as an unremitting duty by day and night and he humbly and becomingly throve on prayers, vigils, and daily fasting. Holy, holy, holy man. And you've just sent me cooking with Massimo. I did! (laughs) I'm going to have to watch that later. 
Pope Leo III then appointed him as the abbot of St. Stephen of the Abyssinians Monastery, which at the time focused on serving pilgrims who came to Rome. Again, the Liber Pontificalis tells us, he provided the bounty of hospitality for the pilgrims and disabled who, for the love of St. Peter the Apostle, flocked from distant regions to his door, preparing what was necessary for their needs. This he had done quietly and dispersed it cheerfully. Pascal is a happy and humble abbot that did his duty diligently, and that earned him enough rapport with the Roman Curia that when Pope Stephen IV died on January 25th, 817, Pascal was elected as Pope on the same day and consecrated the day after. Ah, oh, just take a minute and think about how lightning fast that went. Elected, consecrated. Done. Over. Beautiful. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, and because it was so lightning fast, clearly he was elected and consecrated before anyone consulted with the Roman Emperor, who is now, of course, Louis the Pious. And now you may be thinking, the popes have just gotten rid of requiring consultation or confirmation from an external secular power, so why would they need that now? Particularly given previous popes' push to make the papal states as autonomous as possible. Well, we may be thinking that, but maybe Pascal wasn't, because his first act as pope was to write an epistola apologetica to Louis, explaining that the election and consecration had been quick to get out in front of any factional division that might have complicated things. As Bartolomeo Platina puts it, he forthwith sends nuncios to Louis, excusing himself and laying all the blame upon the clergy and people of Rome who had forcibly compelled him to undertake it. So he's basically saying, hey, sorry you didn't know about this. Everyone else was just so excited. I guess I had to do it. But again, there isn't exactly a precedent to seek the Frankish emperor's confirmation. But our last handful of popes have at least written to inform of an election. So this seems like a bit of a strange choice. But given the type of pope that Pascal is going to be, this may have just been an early attempt to ensure that Louis was on side with Pascal. Historian Horace K. Mann argues that the letter is not an apology or excuse for his consecration without the emperor's consent, but a humble explanation of his accepting the great honor at all. Again, more of a this-was-thrust-upon-me-and-now-I-am-here sort of letter, but one that nevertheless demonstrated he was committed to a strong accord between the papacy and the Frankish Empire. Franks. Franks. Oh, those Franks. <laughs> They're gonna be around. <laughs> so the Pope's letter received a reply from Louis, which congratulated Pascal on his election and confirmed the treaties that had been made with previous popes. But so much more important than that was that it also recognized the Pope as the sovereign head of the Papal States and territories that had been donated by the Franks, and declared that future Papal elections were to be unimpeded by the Franks, Lombards, or any other secular power. So basically, he, he's recognizing that there's a concern about interference in the election, and he's not going to interfere. After the election, envoys from the new pope were expected to be sent to the emperor so they could renew their agreements, but that they wouldn't actually get involved with the elections. 
This decree, called the Pactum Ludovicanum, essentially guarantees the non-involvement of the Franks in the affairs of the Church or the Papal States, unless asked. And it was signed by Louis and his sons and a significant grouping of Frankish clerics. So it's looking good. But like we said, it's not going to last. It also needs to be pointed out that the Pactum Ludovicanum doesn't seem to have been preserved until the 11th or 12th century, which absolutely calls into question its legitimacy as an actual document. But even if the preserved text is from later on, we do know that something of this nature definitely was agreed between Louis and Pascal, and it will be built upon later by future popes and emperors. Either way, this is undeniably a huge agreement. Yes, Louis is effectively ensuring his approval of future popes by expecting envoys for a renewal of their agreements, but he's also just made some room for papal independence over the papal states by being hands-off. This could be seen a number of ways, because either Louis was prepared to relent that the pope's authority was autonomous, or maybe the Franks were just very tired of having to get involved. But either way, Pascal is feeling fantastic about this pact, and was prepared to leave his papal mark on the Frankish dynasty like his successors. And this comes about in 822, when Louis' son Lothair takes over as king of Italy after his cousin Bernard rebelled against Louis and his son. Isn't that a vampire? Sorry. Not a vampire. Lothair is definitely a vampire. Oh, we're going to be dealing with Lothair for a while, and I might have liked him more if he was a vampire. I was trying to figure out which vampire series. I have figured it out. Which vampire? Uh, Immortals After Dark. I don't know that one. They're vampires, and sometimes they fall in love with Valkyries. It's, there's, it's like a very huge, wild mishmash of um, paranormal banging. Sounds about right. <laughs> anyway, onward. This is a complicated situation. We have a rebellion here. So the short version is that as Louis' heir, Lothair would inherit the majority of Frankish territory, which would have made Bernard, the current king of Italy, a vassal of Lothair. And he's not about that life. It was a very short-lived rebellion, and when it was suppressed, Louis ordered that Bernard be blinded. But unfortunately, the blinding was so severe that Bernard died only days later. You can only take the eye you can't shove into the brain. <sighs> Remember when we had the Pope who we just, we're going to leave him to die after this blinding. Maybe, you know, tend to the wounds in this case. So instead of being a vassal, Bernard is now dead. And his kingdom that he would have otherwise kept is now absorbed directly by Lothair. Ah, they amoeba'd it. They amoeba'd it. It would have been a vassal state, but now he has it directly. Osmosis. <laughs> Pope Pascal attended the Emperor Louis when he performed penance for causing the death of his nephew in Attigny, and when Lothair arrived in Rome to assume the Kingdom of Italy, Pascal conducted the ceremonial crowning of Lothair as Holy Roman Emperor on Easter Sunday, April 5th, 823. Easter, why do we keep doing this on Easter? Easter, Christmas Day, you know, big, big important days. It, it just adds to that propaganda and symbolism that you got so frustrated with. 
And like the coronations that had come before it, this one also set new precedents for the tie between the papacy and the Frankish Empire. This was the first coronation in which the emperor was presented with a sword to represent the force of temporal power that would defend the church. And it also cemented the fact that Rome was now where these ceremonial coronations were to take place. Louis had been crowned in Reims, but Charlemagne and now Lothair had both been crowned in Rome, so they could establish a pattern. However, Lothair proved not to be nearly as amenable to the Pope, or to be as hands-off as his father promised, now that he was king of Italy. This was demonstrated in a conflict with a place we've only recently introduced, the Abbey of Farfa. We spoke about Farfa only last week when Pope Stephen IV had confirmed the independence of the Abbey and regranted lost property to Farfa, but had also confirmed that they owed an annual payment to the church. It seemed like that was a pretty steady bet for everyone. But in 824, the current abbot of Farfa, Ingold, had paid the annual due, but for some reason, the lost lands were not actually returned to the abbey. And this made Ingold very, very angry, and so he writes to Lothair and asks him to intervene. And so, intervene Lothair did, and demanded that the Pope return the properties to the abbey, and then decided to declare them immune from all taxation including the dues that were owed to the Pope. That's something that went over particularly well with Pascal. But bigger problems would soon arise that meant he didn't really have time to deal with this. But it is going to certainly reappear in future papacies. So for now, it is some loss of papal primacy with Lothair stepping into church affairs. A little bit of bad papatum and valium. Negative and valium. Negative infallium. Well, he, he has time. <laughs> but soon after the Farfa conflict, Lothair left Rome, and as soon as he did, things went sideways. See, there were still a lot of Roman clerics and nobles who heavily opposed the Frankish influence in church affairs and in the management of the Papal States, and were particularly unhappy to see Frankish influence within the Papal household. Those people wanted the Papal States to maintain a firm independence from the Franks, full stop, and were not at all happy to see Lothair come in and stomp about. This doesn't work well for them. They're just like, we're just going to become a branch of the Frankish Empire. And this resulted in the targeting of Theodore, the Pope's former legate to the Franks and current primacerius, and his son-in-law, Leo, who were essentially the most pro-Frankish administrators in Rome. And when I say targeted, I mean that these two were attacked in the Lateran, blinded, and then beheaded for their loyalty to the emperors Louis and Lothair. Did they have to go that far? Did they have to both blind and behead? Could they have not cut out the blinding entirely and only beheaded? You know, I had the exact same thought when I wrote that, and I also went, Fry's gonna go... Why? Why blinding, then beheading, so? That seems like a lot of extra work. Like, if you're just gonna murder them, just do the straight-up murder. It seems to have been making a point. They were really trying to make a point here, so. 
Obviously, the pro-Frankish faction in Rome are outraged, and they immediately turn to Lothair to deal with this brash and unprovoked murder. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very reasonable. Hey, so we're on your side, and because we're on your side, we're going to just get completely surprised murdered? No, thank you. And this is really concerning to them because they also start to suspect that the Pope was involved with the attacks, or was at least complicit in them. His Pope Twitter page is inciting riots again. Well, the murderers had been men of the papal household. And of course, it wasn't entirely unprecedented because it's still in recent memory that Pope Stephen III had stood idly by while anti-papal supporters and Chris and Serge were blinded and murdered all around him. Mm-hmm. I was there. Not physically. So maybe this is Pascal's way of separating himself from influential pro-Frankish men just standing idly by while they're murdered. When Louis was informed of the murders, he too was fairly suspicious of Pascal. Now, Pascal sent envoys to the emperor to expressly deny his involvement, but he also didn't declaratively condemn the killers. So any protestation of the papal legate saying he was entirely innocent is not going to stop the emperor from sending two officials to Rome to investigate. What's all this then? So the officials intended to hold court and sort out the accusations, but Pope Pascal refused to defer to an imperial court, and instead, he calls a synod in his own authority. And there, Pope Pascal declared an oath of purgation, just like Pope Leo III had, declaring his complete and utter innocence in the murder of Theodore and Leo. This is the same type of oath that he's giving, but in this case, he doesn't defer to the court of Charlemagne, or in this case, Louis. He says, no, I will hold the court. I will have this in my own right, and I'm innocent. You can't just throw your own court like that. But he can. He's the Pope. No one can judge the Pope. That's the whole thing, right? With that, the Frankish officials are forced to let the whole situation go. Who made this rule again? It was like not too many popes ago. Well, we saw this reappear in Pope Leo III's episode where Charlemagne was saying that no one can judge the Pope, but it was a precedent set initially in the Fourth Synod under Pope Symmachus during all of that crazy anti-Popeness. Well, now it's just annoying. (laughs) Yeah, but now they're using it to their advantage. Now they're being buttholes about it. They're being Papatum and Phallium Popes. But Pascal wasn't done, and he actually forbade the investigators from punishing the actual perpetrators of the murder. Which doesn't look great. Oh, Pascal, <laughs> He declares that Theodore and Leo had been guilty of high treason, and therefore the murderers had been justified in executing them. As for what actual high treason occurred... Our closest guess is that they advocated that the Frankish emperor was supreme, but this is highly suspect, and one text that I read used the phrase, clouded by intrigue, which might just be our new shrouded Shrouded in in antiquity. (laughs) Cool motive, bro, still murder. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I could just not do the 9th and 10th or 11th centuries of Pope and just say clouded in intrigue. <laughs> because that's all it is. 
People are going to get mad, though. People have been helping you, Rutger. Think of Rutger. He would agree with me about the clouded and intrigue cassette. That is literally the basis of many of our conversations. So anyways, ultimately, the investigators leave Rome and return to Emperor Louis, who accepts the Pope's oath of purgation, and the whole debacle just gets dropped on the Frankish end. They're like, all right, something went down. Oath of purgation, nobody can judge the Pope, it's fine. But it was not fine. It was so not fine, because this makes Pascal popular with absolutely no one at all. The anti-Frankish faction were still incredibly unhappy with this close relationship he's maintaining with Louis and Lothair. And the pro-Frankish party certainly don't feel protected or defended by him condemning the murdered man instead of the murderers. It only makes him look super, super, super guilty, whether he was or not. Can they do him a murder? (laughs) Well, perhaps they could, but they won't. But all of Rome is in a state of conflicted turmoil. And the only way that Pascal saw to regain control was to be harsher, with greater supervision everywhere, and a grander showing of papal force. No. (laughs) Well, if you're in his shoes, let's just say he's innocent. If you're in his shoes and this is all starting to get really, really stabby, you're going to be concerned. And this is particularly evident with the nobles, because he restricts as much of their influence and power as he can. He reduces all of his consultation with them, and even exiled the most pro-imperial among them out of Rome. Oh, so they've been exiled again. Yeah, they've been exiled again, even though they are just supporting the alliance that the Pope clearly wants to have. This makes him go from unpopular to just generally hated, and undermined what good control in Rome looks like, which is going to have some lasting consequences. We're going to come back to public sentiment on Pascal, but there are some more things that we need to cover first. Like, iconoclasm. Again? I know! During Pascal's papacy, iconoclasm returns to the East. The last time we discussed it was in Adrian's episode, with the Second Council of Nicaea formally condemning iconoclasm held by Empress Irene. But now, the current emperor, Leo V the Armenian, is a fierce iconoclast, and had deposed the latest patriarch of Constantinople, Nikephorus. Nick Heferus? Nikephorus. Nikephoros. What a name. It is, it, but it is a very Byzantine name. I'm going to put that down for an NPC. <laughs> Nikephorus? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect. The emperor has deposed Nikephorus as patriarch and held a synod in 815 to reinstitute state-sponsored iconoclasm. He quickly confiscated monastic properties and wealth belonging to iconoduls, which placed a significant number of iconodule monks and clerics across the east. Now, one significant opponent of Leo's iconoclasm, the monk and future saint Theodore Studides, 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 Studites, Studites. Well, it would be Studides because it's Greek, you know, so. So Studides, Theodore Studides, wrote to Pope Pascal asking him to intercede, for which he was flogged on order of the emperor. Studides? 
Yeah, just for sending this letter saying, help, he gets beaten up. Flogged. Flogged. Pascal immediately sent an envoy to Constantinople to try and reason with the emperor, unsuccessfully. And he decided to refuse to accept envoys sent to him by the new iconoclastic patriarch that Leo had appointed. Man, he feels real strong about those lambs. He feels so strong about those lambs. On both sides here, they both feel really strongly about lambs, just on opposing sides. He also wrote personal letters to Theodore Studites, calling on him to continue the opposition in the East. And of course, the Pope received many monks who had fled from the East, giving them places in Roman monasteries and putting their iconodulist skills to work, as we will see in a moment. And this really annoyed the emperors. And I say emperors because Leo's successor, Michael II, is also an iconoclast. And Michael II even writes to Emperor Louis trying to get him to stop the Pope from accepting refugee monks in Rome. We want to flog them. We would like to flog them. Please stop him. Clearly, that didn't go anywhere. Also, Pope Pascal is the first Pope to have evangelical contact with Scandinavia. He granted Ebbo, the Frankish Archbishop of Reims, to a commission to, quote, evangelize the Danes. This doesn't make him the first person to try, of course, because St. Willebrard, remember him, St. Willebrard? In Wennebrar and Werebrar. He had tried to convert a Danish king, Ogendis, in the previous century, but that had been to no avail. So, in 822, Ebbo conducted the first papal mission into Denmark and returned twice more during his lifetime, though with only negligible success. I am playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and it is set several centuries past this point, and they're still mad at Christians. And, and they will continue to be mad at Christians, but they won't be mad at Ebbo because a lot of sources just kind of suggest that he gave up. I would too. Well, yeah, and Denmark would be more successfully evangelized in about a decade later by St. Ansgar, but like you said, not wholly and totally for quite a while after. But none of what we've discussed so far is what Pascal is actually famous for, because Pascal undertook two major endeavors that have lasting significance to this day. So much so that Pascal is one of the more recognizable names on the actual landscape of Rome. So he has two projects that he goes about, and these, have, these are so massive. So the first is his major basilica reconstructions, and the second is his translation of saints' relics. So for this segment, I consulted heavily with a fantastic book, Caroline J. Goodson's The Rome of Pope Pascal, Papal Power, Urban Renovation, and Church Rebuilding and Relic Translation. What a really specific book. Yes, but this is, very, this is like a turning touchstone moment for these things. So it sounds very specific, but it has such a whole and total impact on Rome that you can point to these two things and go, ah, yes, this is when Rome changed. So... She makes, in this book, an extremely in-depth evaluation of Pope Pascal's building work and what it represented in Rome in regards to expressions of papal primacy and secular autonomy and sacred cults of saint veneration. So a lot of what I am going to say is summarized from her work or inspired by what she's written 
And she's essentially done an amazing job of laying this whole thing out, and I'm trying to condense 400 pages of her book down to a few. So by all means, definitely go and read her book if you're listening and you want more. So first, let's talk about the reconstruction that he did. Pascal focused his efforts on three major basilicas, which he completely rebuilt. This is Santa Prosody, Santa Maria in Dominica, and Santa Cecilia in Trastevere. These were whole and total constructions from scratch, including walls, ceilings, altars, and incredibly detailed and colorful mosaics constructed by the Iconodule monks who had fled Constantinople. Lovely. He also carried out significant renovations of Santa Maria Maggiore and on the Scola Saxonum after a fire, and added two oratories in St. Peter's, one for Saints Processus and Martinian, and one for Pope Saints Sixtus II and Fabian. So why are these reconstructions so important? Yes, why? <laughs> why? Why? This isn't the destruction of old St. Peter's for new St. Peter's, is it? It is not, but <laughs> that's still coming. The reason that these are so important is that first, all three of the major rebuilds were minor titular churches before this moment. And we haven't talked about what that means in any detail in quite a while. Like in the last episode we talked about it, it was in Fabian's episode. So a titular church is one of the 25 churches of Rome that housed a papal liturgical celebration throughout the year. So what this means is the Pope would arrive in a procession and celebrate a feast or a mass on fixed days at these churches throughout the year. These are the churches that are then overseen by a cardinal priest and cardinal deacon. And today, a titular church are the churches assigned to the cardinals, and we've gone from 25 to 165. There's a lot more of the world. There is a lot more of the world. Titular churches. Now, as new, remarkably designed churches with significant altars and beautiful mosaics, the likes of which could only be seen in Constantinople, and for a couple other reasons we'll talk about in a moment, these three tituli now become hugely significant. Something that would be carried from the medieval world to today, because these are all still very, very important churches in Rome. But more than this, the reconstructions of these basilicas, and why they were chosen to be redone, has significant symbolic value that allowed Pope Pascal to make a statement about the power of the papacy and its presence. So first, the location of these basilicas is important. All three are located in extremely busy, bustling areas of Rome that were thriving in medieval development. And by placing a big, grand church in the midst of the city's industries and main routes, Pascal's inserting the presence of the papacy into the daily lives of the Romans in a way that would make them take notice. And with St. Peter's and the Lateran and Santa Maria Maggiore, there's now a major titulus in every region of the city. So this emphasized the ubiquity of the papacy. In the markets, where they worked, where they traded, where they traveled, the spiritual, the sacred, and the papal was there for the people of Rome. But not only was the papacy just everywhere now, it was also magnificent. Because Pascal had used the reconstruction to demonstrate the church's wealth and prestige, and he chose designs that impressed people. This is where we start seeing high ceilings, classic styles, marble and porphyry stone, 
And then the interiors being lavished with gold and silver and textiles and luxury. And then we have the art. We have the mosaics, which represent the saints, Christ, Mary, the apostles, lambs, and also the Pope as an intercessor for humankind. Bonus, Pascal prominently appears in the major mosaics in all three churches. So again, his face is everywhere. This butthole gets to be <laughs> everywhere. Forever. <laughs> Forever. But there's still more, because Carolyn Goodson also argues that the Reconstructions made a powerful argument in stone for the autonomy of the papacy and the papal states. It's a demonstration of what the Pope could do. So how could this omnipresent, impacting, wealthy, powerful, apostolic successor of Peter be anything but independent? These are now not just spiritual and sacred places, they're political spaces that showcase the Pope caring for the people of Rome spiritually and practically. Because again, he's in charge. He's providing for the poor and the sick. And also commercially, because now he's making Rome an impressive, attractive city for pilgrims and traders, and rebuilding its sense of importance on an international scale. Gotta get those uh, tourists in. Gotta get the tourists in. Tourism always. And on this note, historian Thomas F.X. Noble calculated that within the 8th and 9th centuries, 94% of construction projects were patronized by the church making the Pope the largest medieval patron of construction in Rome, bar none. Any way you approach it, the Pope was providing more effective secular admin for the people of Rome than its overlords had ever done, and this was a symbolic declaration of the Pope as a capable secular leader, independent of all those who would seek to interfere. So that brings us up to speed on the building projects, but that's still only half the story and half its impact. Where are these translated saints? Well, during his papacy, he translates the body of over 2,000 saints, martyrs, popes, and significant clerics out of the catacombs and into the churches of Rome. Mostly into his churches, of course, but also to various churches within the city. For the tourism. You're getting there, yes. So before Pascal, we've seen some saints <laughs> moved inside the walls in the face of things like oncoming invasions or desecration of catacombs a la Ostrogoths and Lombards. But in large part, the veneration of the saints still happened outside of the walls of the city. Saints weren't moved unless there was an urgent reason. Pilgrims came to the sites of saint burials due to those famous 7th century pilgrim itineraries. And the celebration of feast days were held at the suburban cemeteries, catacombs, and chapels. And while this was an exceptionally popular practice, it's not in any way really tied to the papacy. Popes in the past had had some minor connections, you know, they'd made minor improvements and restorations, but the cemeteries outside of the walls of Rome were tended by the suburban monasteries, and who also, for the most part, were conducting all of the ceremonies. And so there was this entire branch of Christian veneration that wasn't really touched by the influence of the Pope at all. And that was definitely going to change. So the way this comes about, according to Pascal, was through a miracle. Oh, really? Miracles. 
A vision of St. Cecilia appeared to Pope Pascal in a dream and told him that the long-accepted story that her body had been stolen by the Lombard king Aistolf wasn't true and told him where to find her. When he awoke, he went to the place she indicated and there uncovered the body of the famous martyr as well as her husband's, his brother's, and two popes. <gasps> Surprise! Surprise! Bodies everywhere! He then personally brought the relics of all of them to the newly constructed Basilica of Santa Cecilia in Trastevere. Big moment. And this is presented in the Liber Pontificalis. It's a full accounting of a miracle. So, I've got to give it to you. One day when he made his way to St. Peter's to celebrate the customary vigils and to stay and sing morning praises in front of his confessio as Sunday dawned, he sank into a sudden sleep and saw standing beside him a girl who had the appearance of a virgin and was adorned with the clothing of an angel. She uttered these words, We thank you greatly for abandoning the struggle you had long undertaken on my part when you lent your ears to the deceptive reports that were spread. It is because you have been so much in my service that we are able to speak to each other with our own voices. The pontiff was now listening carefully and he began to eagerly inquire who she was, who spoke such words to him, and what her name was. To him she replied, If you ask my name, I am called Cecilia, Christ's servants. To her the chief prelate spoke, How can I believe this, since for a long time the story has been told that the body of Cecilia, this venerable martyr of Christ, had been stealthily purloined by Aistulf king of the Lombards and by his men when he was besetting Rome as an enemy? When the venerable pontiff suggested such things, Almighty God's handmaid said to him, That the Lombards sought eagerly to find me is certainly true, but I was aided by the assistance of my Lord Jesus and my Lady God's Holy Mother, the Ever-Virgin Mary, and they were unable to find either me or to take me far away from here as they wished. And so, as you have begun to look for me, you should not stop applying yourself with unceasing efforts to find me, because the Lord God, for whose love and honor I have suffered, has been pleased that you should find me and bury me in the church you've newly built. So saying, she was taken from his sight. Then, when morning praises were over, this venerable pontiff, in view of the signs so clearly and indubitably revealed, painstakingly began to seek here and there where her sacred body might lie buried. As he sought carefully, God granted that he discovered it, clothed in gold vestments, in the cemetery of Praetextatus, outside the Appian Gate, with the body of her venerable husband Valerian, and also the linens full of the blood of her martyrdom, when stricken by the ungodly executioner, she was consecrated a martyr in the Lord Christ who reigns forever. These linens had been used to wipe away the holy martyr's blood, soaked in the sacred blood from the executioner's three strokes, and they were discovered wrapped at the feet of her body. Handling all these things himself, he gathered them, and with great honor placed the virgin's body with her martyrs the dear husband Valerian and Tiberius and Maximus, and also the pontiffs Urban and Lucius, under the sacred altar in the church dedicated in the name of his holy martyr inside Rome's city walls, to almighty God's praise and glory. So after this, Pascal continued the translations of distinguished saints and martyrs into the city and interred them in the churches across Rome. But before we get to the significance, a couple things here with that account. The Liber Pontificalis here says that Cecilia was found in the catacombs of Praetextatus, but traditionally it's understood that she was buried at the catacombs of Calixtus, 
which they still claim. And if you go to the catacombs of Calixtus today, there is a sculpture where she was allegedly found. I'm fairly certain we've even looked at a picture of that. I've seen it in person. So this is an error in the Liber Pontificalis. Also, the discovery of the linens also represents something that Pascal will popularize quite a bit. Contact relics. In order to understand what he's doing here, we need to define contact relics. These are objects that have become relics due to having been close to the body of a saint, either in their lifetime or after their burial. So why move all of these relics when it hadn't been the tradition ever? Several reasons. First, it gave all of the new churches that he's built and all the other titular churches around the city more function than just being where the liturgies were celebrated. If they now housed relics of their popular saints, not only was the churches going to see more visitation and use as a cultural center in each community, but also the holiness of those spaces were further amplified. They're now made sacred. They have the bones of holy martyrs. And this, of course, further amplifies that holiness around the Pope himself. He's always in proximity to the saints now, much as he is the successor of Peter. And it very much marries the two important parts of the Roman religious life and focuses the most important spiritual figures right in the heart of Rome. In the same way, he was able to associate him with two very notable papal martyrs in transferring the relics of Pope Sixtus II and Fabian, who became of particular importance because he was the pope who brought back the body of Pontian, and now Pascal is bringing him back, so he's tying himself onto that tradition. He even transferred relics into the tomb of his mother in one of his churches, just straight up into her coffin here, mom. Yeah, he just puts some relics with his mom in St. Prosody. His mother being buried with saints is a very particular move of familial glorification. Let's just dump some bones on top of my mom's bones. Yeah, exactly. And then she becomes very glorious because she's sleeping next to the saints and... She gets depicted in one of the mosaics, which we'll look at. And so it all, you know, if his face is everywhere and his mother's face is everywhere, this is just, is just so great for him. The mass translation of relics was also a way for the Pope to control the possession of relics and to standardize if and when translation should be done. It would certainly take away from the prestige of Rome if suddenly all cities around Europe were moving all of their saints into churches or if the relics began to spread out from Rome. And this is something that at the time was a very real concern because the Franks are like so interested in relics. They're obsessed. Charlemagne had wanted all important oaths sworn over relics. And so Pascal emphasized that relics were not to be separated or fragmented. And whenever he would receive a request for a relic by the Franks or by anyone else, he denied them and restricted their movement only to the purview of the Pope. Nope, all of our martyrs got to stay here. Sorry, I know that St. Petronilla is the patron saint of the Franks, but mm, she's here. She can't move. It's another extension of power. And this is where those contact relics came into play, because he's not going to send a finger or a skull or any sacred bodies of the saints, but he could send linens or 
pieces of wood that were now contact relics to mollify the request without leading to any sort of tension. And the translation of saints could also be interpreted as a response to the revival of iconoclasm in the East. Not only had Pascal put the fleeing monks to work in his new churches and beautifying them with iconic art, but now he's also conveying in an enhanced and revitalized way this veneration of saints. He's literally incorporated images and objects of the saints in the most direct way as a statement of the Western Orthodoxy. So, clearly, this is impactful significance all around. But that's all for Pascal, because he dies on February 11th, 824. And he was not buried in St. Peter's. No? Despite his incredible construction projects that we credit him so well for today, due to his massive unpopularity at the time, the Roman Curia refused to allow him to be buried in St. Peter's. Oh. Remember? They hated him. They hated him so much. So, Wendy J. Reardon says that he was left unburied until the elevation of his successor, Eugene II, several months later. And then Eugene, you know, doing the right thing, had him buried at the Chapel of St. Zeno at the Santa Prasidi, which is where Pascal had buried his mother. He gets to be buried with those saints and his mom as well. However, Wendy J. Reardon also adds that in the 17th century, research into the St. Prasidi and its chapels show no evidence of Pascal actually being buried there. The Liber Pontificalis glosses over all of this and just says that he was buried at St. Peter's, apparently in the oratories of Saints Processus and Martinian. But these oratories were moved twice in 1548 and 1605, and there is no recorded evidence of a burial there either. Editor of the Liber Pontificalis Raymond Davis has only footnoted this with, the burial was carried out with some difficulty. So in reality, we have no idea where Pascal went. They hated him so much that we've completely lost track of his body. He's gone. He's gone. I mean, there's so many of them that are gone. I hope they change his face on his mosaics. Well, he is kind of goofy looking, I guess. I mean, well, you can judge for yourself when we get there. But that is Pascal, and now it is time to rate him. Papatum infallium. Here he's, he's going to get some points, but he's going to get some not-so-great points as well, so... The construction of the basilicas. This is really big. Santa Cecilia, Santa Prasidi, and Santa Maria in Dominica. These are huge, major, major churches that are big in Rome today. They are the majesty of the papacy. He put the impact of the papacy everywhere in the lives of these Romans. That cannot be ignored. The translation of relics. Papal retention as papal power. Byzantine rejection of iconoclasm and controlling Carolingian desire for relics by having the authority over them. Pretty big. We also have to credit him for the Pactum Ludovicanum, because this is free papal elections without interference. I mean, it doesn't go super well, but the fact that he got that agreement at all is pretty substantial. Now this one, we also need to give him a little bit of credit too for as the Pope, even though it makes him mad, because he refused to acknowledge the authority of an imperial court when he was being investigated, and instead calls a synod himself, resisting the imperial overstep, and clears himself on an oath of purgation rather than in judgment because, again, no one can judge the Pope. Really here, the only bad thing is that 
Emperor Lothair steps in and undermines him over Farfa, and he doesn't have a chance to do anything about it. In this category, it's not terrible at all. What do you want to give him? I'll give him, I think, a six. If you're going to give him a six, I'm going to give him an eight. It's not bad, but like, yeah, if we just, okay. No, I'll give him a seven. Okay. I will still stick with my eight because, yeah, this is some this is some real expressions of papal power and it's pretty good. So in this category, he's going to do well with a 15. I had to think about it. Like, I really hate him. And then I had to, like, compartmentalize. I know. I know. He's a very, very, like, conflicting one to cover. So let's talk about why we hate him. Fructus prohibitum. Uh, was he involved in the murder? He denied his involvement, but also protected the murderers and condemned the victims, and then exiled a bunch of people that were pro-Franks and was super harsh. Super suspicious. Yeah, it's just, there's no good about it here, so I definitely think he was involved in the murders. I'm leaning towards, like, a, a six. I think a six is pretty reasonable here for him. I'm also going to match your six, and he'll get a twelve for Fructus Prohibitum. Seculari impactum. He underwent the coronation of Lothair, so he's cementing the tradition and ensuring that it comes to Rome. Again, he's getting an agreement from the emperors that they're not going to interfere in papal elections. But he's so unpopular that when he dies, they won't let him be buried in St. Peter's. Yeah. He also put Scandinavia on the evangelization map, which... It's kind of like a, a little good, a little bad. Let's, uh, let's... Yeah. I think I'm leaning more towards a four on this one. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm aiming a three or a four. You know, the, the Pactum, if the Pactum had held really, really well, and this started, like, a, an incredible legacy of non-interference, it would be awesome, but he's not responsible for that. So, yeah, I'll match a four. He'll get an eight for Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Well, now we're going to look at those mosaics because we have them. But first, I have a minor description to read from The Popes During the Carolingian Empire by Horace K. Mann. Describes Pascal as thus. All the contemporary mosaics represent him as a tall, with large eyes, long face, beardless, and tonsured. He is in each case also depicted as clad in a tunic, reaching to his feet and ornamented with two long stripes wearing a white pallium with little crosses in red. Show me this monster. And again, remember that he has a square nimbus, so this means he was alive when this was made. So there is Santa Maria in Dominica. Mm -hmm. This is Santa Prasidi. He's holding the church. You can see these are very consistent. Yeah. This is this is a larger version of Do we that have one. One that we're going to rate on our regular We will rate him on his traditional one, yes. But first I will show you these. Look at all these square boys. So in this last one, this is his mother who has the square nimbus over her head. And a lamb. And whatever these copies are. Deer. They're deer. This is the kind of lamb that we need to make our final pin. I love it. Just a, a lumpy, lumpy medieval lamb. A lumpy medieval lamb. And so here's the image we're actually going to rate him on, which looks nothing like the contemporary images of him. Uh, kind of looks, looks like, like a harsh boy. second one. His nose looked like somebody punched it several times. He, yeah, yeah, it definitely is a punchy nose. He also looks mean. Like, he looks mean. I, 
I don't know if it's resting bitch face or just- He probably is... blinded that man and then beheaded them himself. <laughs> He's got a little bit more hair than most of our popes. Yeah, it might be a comb over. I don't know. I'm not- Like, I look at him and he doesn't make me happy. I'm gonna give him a two. This is a man that you find in a bar in, like, the yeah. middle of Indiana that you do not want to speak to. That's exactly it. I'm gonna give him a one, because I don't like it. Your description is too perfect. <laughs> He's gonna get a three, which rounds out to a 0.75. I'm gonna throw a couple more images at you, just because they're also terrible, but they're more <laughs> contemporary to the mosaics. Just... The last one. Those mustaches. Terrible mustache. Again, a man in a bar in Indiana, but for entirely different reasons that you would stay away from. A rural Indiana bar. Don't go there. Pascal's there. I also sent you a map showing you when I talked about uh, the basilicas now having a major titulus sort of in every region of Rome. I circled them in little red dots for you. Yeah. They're everywhere. They are everywhere. That one where his eye is really high and really low. <laughs> it's so bad. Who did this? Who checked this? It's so bad. I know. That one is like, that artist regressed so far. Tempus Pontificus. January 25th, 817 to February 11th of 824, which is seven years and a score of 1.75. Well, I guess if he did all that renovation, he had to be around for a while. But like, that seems like really long for someone who you hate a man so um, so hard. Like, Yeah, but they hated him openly and then they just waited until he died to insult him so badly, so... Whoever drew this one picture of his broken hand and his lopsided face really hated him. Oh, yeah. That is a really broken hand. There's, there's some gout in those fingers, for sure. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round! Do, 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 do. This may surprise you, but yes. What? He was canonized in the 16th century with a feast day of May 14th. But in the 1963 Martyrology Retool, it's now February 11th. I would really like to send a strongly worded letter to the Catholic Church about how he should not. I know! Of all the- like, we don't have some of these incredible popes that we've covered recently as actual saints, and yet he gets to be a saint? It just seems odd. He's not a patron saint, so you can make him a patron saint of whatever you want. He is the patron saint of unnecessarily throwing things into coffins. That's so specific. Throwing things into coffins. Well, I guess, you know, people do that because they, like, bury people with things that they think they need. You know, here's your iPod. Here's a picture. Like, they don't need to be buried with any of that. So now they have a patron saint for it. He also may have a bit of a miracle. Miracles. I mentioned in the restorations that he rebuilt the Scola Saxonum after a fire, but when the fire was actually happening, it's recorded in the Liber Pontificalis that Pascal ran to the scene barefoot, and his presence and prayers at the blaze prevented the fire from spreading and was eventually subdued. You know that man never went nowhere in his bare feet. <laughs> no, he didn't. And it's also not called a miracle in any of the sources, but it seems a little bit mystical. So, there's that. 
He shouted at the fire and the fire went away. Because it just didn't want to deal with him. So that brings us to our total score, which is a very impressive 38.5, putting him in 15th place. That's because he sucks. Look, sometimes you need some scandal to get well known. And I'm going to ask you the question now, and I want you to actually think about it because I want to know if he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull. We got to consider that last bit. Yeah, we do. Impact. His name is literally all over Rome. You can't go there and not see it. Look, he got a patron sainthood and he's like everywhere. And I think that he is undeserving of both of those things. I will not be giving him a papal bull. All right. You know, like I want to argue with you about it because of... He's already got too much recognition. Yeah, I know. I want to argue because there is an argument to be made in terms of the translation of the relics. This is huge. This is the cult of saints. This is the ubiquity of the papacy. But I think you've said it. He has enough recognition. And so I'm not going to argue with you about it. And he's not going to get it. So sorry, Pascal. Stop sucking so bad. (laughs) Stop being the worst. So we have a couple thank yous to make. Of course, we'd like to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. And of course, we have some Patreons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we'd like to thank Window Cleaners Stole My Apricots and Sarah Coward. Ego te absolvo. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifaxpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifaxpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist, or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And that's everything for today, so we'd like to say thank you, and goodbye. Bye!